This is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Hope everyone's having a good day today. Newsy week. Quisi Adelfo Mensa hired officially as Vikings general manager. News conference later this morning, but I want to talk about that a lot right from the jump here. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Some interesting hiring news around the NFL as well with uh, Packers offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett uh, reportedly getting the head coaching job in Denver, sure to fuel a little more speculation about whether Aaron Rodgers might wind up with the Broncos, given that connection. Um, talk about a couple big basketball games tonight later on as well. Gophers and Timberwolves both play tonight. Some intriguing matchups there. And Rachel Blount, um, Olympics writer for the Star Tribune, will join me here in a little while to kind of give a sneak peek ahead at the Beijing Games and all of the great stories to tell and also all of the hurdles that await her covering that Olympics. She leaves in just a couple days part of a long process of getting to Beijing. But first, what did I miss? Unlikely you missed it completely, but like I said at the jump, the Vikings have their new general manager, 40-year-old Quasi Adolfo Mensa, coming from the Browns before that, coming from the 49ers. Interesting hire. I think it's uh it's fascinating on a lot of levels. Uh, you know, uh, here's here's a guy with a you know, a background as an energy trader, um, you know, comes to the league, you know, from all, you know, all sorts of advanced degrees, went to Princeton, went to, you know, got an advanced degree from Stanford, master's in economics. So a different kind of hire, particularly for the NFL. I just want to get to kind of five questions I will have about how he will run this team. And I think that, that those the answers to those questions will be fascinating as they play out. First one, does this type of hire work in the NFL? We've seen, you know, this style of, you know, top personnel boss hire in Major League Baseball for sure, um, the NBA for sure. And in fact, in this market right now, we, we have, you know, some three fairly similar, at least if you just go by resumes and perceived styles, three similar types of top personnel people right now. You've got Sashin Gupta, who is, you know, at the top of the chain with the Wolves ever since Gerson Rosas was fired. He has degrees from MIT. He has an MBA from Stanford. Um, of course, Adolfo Mensa, I mentioned, from Princeton, Masters in Economics from Stanford. Derek Falvey with the Twins um, got his degree in economics. Thad Levine with the Twins has an MBA from UCLA. These guys non-traditional backgrounds i mean some of them did still play to a certain degree but not you know not that kind of old school mentality where it's got to be someone who played the game or someone who you know kind of came up in the game a different way of thinking about it and you know i guess the question is you know baseball there's a lot of data out there there's a lot of ways to isolate on an individual player i think basketball there is too. That's where some of these kind of decisions, some of this, some of these data points are particularly relevant. Football is a different type of game. It's these orchestrated plays, stops and starts. It's not this continuous action. It's hard to isolate sometimes on one specific thing. So 
how will this type of hire work in the NFL will be interesting. That is not to doubt Adolfo Mensa in any way. It's just to wonder how this style of hire will work in this particular league and sport because we just haven't seen a whole lot of it in the NFL, at least not in the top job yet. Number two, how will he value different players on this roster, even different positions on this roster, differently than Rick Spielman. Rick Spielman was here for a very long time, was invested in these players he has on the roster, had a certain philosophy of how he wanted to build a roster. And, you know, some of that was probably in tandem with Mike Zimmer, who was here for eight years. But, you know, at the end of the day, Rick Spielman made the personnel decisions, um, you know, paid Dalvin Cook a lot, paid linebackers a lot of money if you look at you know some charts on football outsiders over the cap those are positions where teams don't generally pay as much money as the Vikings have paid over the years um so how how will they look at this how how will Adolfo Mensa come in and look at this roster and try to figure out how to maximize the value at different positions I think that'll be interesting and also interesting is that he didn't draft any of these players he didn't sign any of these players he is not have that kind of personal relationship, that kind of personal interest perhaps in seeing those players stay on the roster to maybe look, make him look better. I'm not saying Rick Spielman did that, but I think that's human nature. The players you draft, you want to see them succeed as reflection on your ability as well. Adolfo Mensa comes in, he's got basically no, you know, no horse in that race. He's got uh, a fresh set of eyes to just evaluate where are we deficient? If he's just looking at the Vikings, where are we, you know, where where can we build? Where where are we good? Where do I like what we've done? Where do I want to change things? So that fresh set of eyes will be interesting, and how he go about goes about that will be interesting. And I think an, an answer he gave when he got the Browns job in 2020 will will kind of tell a little bit of the story of the answer to both number one and number two. So let me play a clip of that right now. My whole life, and not just my professional life, my whole life I've been really passionate about decision-making under uncertainty. And I think um, Wall Street, you know, my commodities trading background is a reflection of that. I think my graduate school in economics is a reflection of that. I think playing basketball is a reflection of that. When you, you know, I think what withdraws people to sports um, from an academic environment is that you get a chance to apply some of these academic principles to things that happen kind of subconsciously on the court or on the field. Um, and so... I would, in a sense, some people see that as very different, but I don't see it very different in my ability to kind of pool information to make a bet on the direction of the oil market versus pulling information to making a bet on the direction of an NFL player. I think those are similar uh, processes. Obviously, they're, they're different skill sets and different uh, you know, information sources. And I kind of came into San Francisco kind of a, as a, you know, as a tabula rasa, clean slate, and just learned from those guys and learned the methodologies that they use. But ultimately, you are just you're making decisions under uncertainty, and there are certain things that carry over uh, across those those fields. And that was Adolfo Mensa basically after he was asked by a reporter at his introductory news conference with the Browns in 2020, basically how you go from Wall Street to the NFL. So I will be interested to see how that works as well and what kind of roster moves he makes as a result. Number three, kind of tangentially related, what data does he trust the most on Kirk Cousins? That will be his biggest decision. Again, not making it in a vacuum. I'm sure whatever head coach he hires, which we'll get to in a minute, will have some thoughts on that as well. Can you win with this guy? Is it a matter of you know changes around him, or do you need to change that position? 
You could slice the numbers a lot of different ways with Kirk Cousins. Pro Football Focus likes Kirk Cousins a lot more than, say, ESPN's total QBR metrics. So how will he value Kirk Cousins? How will he look at that $45 million cap number in 2022? How will he look at the prospect of trading him, the value that comes there potentially, versus extending him, versus letting that contract play out? Um, Again, a fresh set of eyes on that question. He's not the one who signed Kirk Cousins. He's coming from Cleveland, where they had Baker Mayfield, a number one overall pick. Before that, he was in San Francisco, where they were still, you know, working on. You know, they had Jimmy Garoppolo. They had a, kind of a run-heavy style, but they, you know, had been a little bit stuck at quarterback. So, how will he come in and look at this specific question about Kirk Cousins and make the biggest decision that is looming in front of him right away? Number four: Does this hire eliminate certain head coach candidates who might or might not be into? His style of approach, which, again, is not strictly analytics, collaborative, all these buzzwords, but he certainly will come at it from a different direction than other more traditional football guy hires. So, you know, does that that change how a, a certain head coach might look at this job? Raheem Morris, for instance, famously said earlier this year, stats are for losers, and I don't think he meant that in you know a, a certain way i think he meant you can't just pay attention to the numbers but you know do you need a head coach who is going to kind of be into the the sort of approach that that Adolfo Mensa is going to take i think you want to have those two guys on the same page i think that is a certainty so how will that play out as the vikings now turn to their coaching search full time with Adolfo Mensa in place and the last one is kind of an interesting what if If the Vikings hadn't had success in 2019, remember coming off that 2018 season that kind of fell apart, there were some questions about the job status of Zimmer, Spielman, everything like that after 2018 going into 2019 felt like a a must-win season, and they did. They they won 10 games, made the playoffs, pulled an upset in the the wildcard round. Zimmer gets an extension. Cousins gets an extension. If the Vikings hadn't had success in 2019, might we have seen this type of move two years ago with Kevin Stefanski also hired as head coach? We'll never know, but we do know right now the Wilfs have decided to go with an unconventional hire. Maybe they were ready for that two years ago. Maybe they weren't. Um, again, hindsight, we'll never know because it didn't play out that way. But I will be interested. I would be interested to know how close they would have gotten to this kind of hire if that season had gone much differently. If they'd gone. Eight and eight, seven and nine. That was back in the good old days of sixteen games, by the way. So what what uh, what might have happened with you know with the with the coach and general manager? Would there have been a switch at that point had things played out differently? We don't know. What we do know now is there's a change, and there will be more change with a head coach hired very soon. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for twenty four seven gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Happy to be joined on Daily Delivery today by Rachel Blount. Does a great job covering a lot of things at the Star Tribune, but one of the things she does best is kind of spearhead our coverage of the Olympic Games. It's been an interesting Olympics cycle. Maybe that's a good Minnesota euphemism uh for using the word interesting rachel because it's not only you know this this packed you know we just had the summer games you know six seven months ago however long ago that was now we're doing the olympics uh, in the winter games now and dealing with covid in both 
cases. Um, Rachel, first off, how are you doing? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I have been less stressed in my life. Let me put it that way. I bet. I bet. It seems like you're handling it as, as well as you can. You leave along with Star Tribune columnist Lavelle E. Neal third um, this weekend as you begin your journey to Beijing. Um, I don't know how much of the logistics you want to get into, but you know what, what are some of the challenges of, of just getting there, and, you know, especially in this time of COVID, where the games are this year and things of that nature? It's far more complicated than Tokyo was, and Tokyo is very complicated. China has had a zero COVID policy really from the outset of the pandemic, where they are trying to literally have no COVID cases in their country at all. They've locked down entire cities, you know, literally telling people they cannot leave their, their homes. And so that approach is... is pretty similar to what they are doing for the Olympics. They are conducting the Olympics in what they're calling a closed loop in Beijing. Nobody comes in unless you have passed all kinds of tests and all kinds of of protocols. Nobody goes out. So it's very, very protective. It's going to be like a little island unto itself in Beijing where we're gonna be completely separated from the rest of the city. In order to get into that closed loop, in order to cover the Olympics, compete in the Olympics, volunteer at the Olympics, anything like that, you have to have you have to be vaccinated or quarantine for 21 days inside China. There is one athlete I've heard of that that is that chose to quarantine rather than be vaccinated. Only medical exemptions are allowed. You can't say a religious exemption. You can't say, I just don't want to get vaccinated. You have to provide a medical reason why you cannot get vaccinated. Uh, Lavelle and I have to undergo two COVID tests before we leave, a 72-hour test and a 96-hour test. And those have to be conducted in a lab, a local lab here in Minneapolis that had to be approved by the Chinese government. So you can't just go to CBS and get your test. They, they have to approve your tester. Getting to the Olympics, many of the U.S. athletes will be traveling on charter flights, and everyone who goes will have to be on a charter or what the Chinese are calling special temporary flights. They have shut down commercial air traffic into Beijing because of COVID. They've essentially closed the borders of the country. So all the Olympic guests are having to arrange these special flights, which has been quite an adventure unto itself. Uh, When we arrive in Beijing, we will be tested at least once a day. That has been the baseline, but we are now hearing that because of Omicron, we may end up being tested twice a day. And with the dreaded nasal swabs, we had COVID tests were uh, saliva tests in Tokyo, and the media only had to take them every three days. So testing is really ramped up. We must wear N95 or KN95 masks. No cloth masks will be allowed this time. So just getting your head around all the rules and trying to remember all these things and getting signed up for all the websites where we have to try, we have to like every single day, let the Chinese know what's our temperature and and are we feeling any symptoms? So just trying to get a handle on that has been a gargantuan task. How does that, I mean, 
a, how does that compare to, I think you've talked a little bit about this, but, but the summer games and what, what you went through with, you know, a lot of the protocols there, but B, how, how does that, you know, safety certainly paramount, but how does covering a games like this impact your coverage and just your, your mental space and being able to write about these stories as you're, you know, kind of distracted with a lot of other things that are, you know, very, you know, very big and being thrown at you. It does. That's a really good question because it certainly does crowd up your headspace. You have to think every day about, okay, now when do I need to take my COVID test? Where do I need to go to get that test? How long is that going to take? How do I get from wherever I'm getting tested to the event that I need to cover? Uh, do I have enough masks with me? Um, am I going to have any issues getting into a building because they've had capacity limits? There are so many things to remember and so many things to check off your list before you even start to think about, okay, I've got to be at say gymnastics by uh, 5 PM to to cover SUNY Lee. And and here's all the things that I need to have ready to go to do that. So it, it, it is just a huge, huge task and something that, we had never dealt with before Tokyo. There'd never been anything like this where you had to jump through so many hoops to get to an Olympics and while you were at an Olympics. So Beijing is just going to be magnified. We, we are going to have more testing. We are going to have more things that we have to do each day. And the isolation is a challenge as well. In Tokyo, it was really kind of depressing to be in this wonderful, vibrant city where the Olympics are. Typically, the city is just humming with activity during the Olympics, and the people are so excited. There are public watch sites around. The city's all decorated. Well, this time, there was none of that. All that was was shut down by COVID, and the media and athletes only saw the city through bus windows. We were so locked up. We, we were in Tokyo allowed after our first 14 days. Then we could go to restaurants and we could ride public transportation. We will not have that in Beijing. We'll be locked down the entire time and inside the closed loop. But the experience in Tokyo, it didn't feel like a normal Olympics because you weren't able to get that energy from the city and the people. And I want to ask you about more interesting on, you know, on the surface playing field kind of things in one moment. I had just a, one more question as you were talking about that. Have you talked to athletes about that or how does that, how did that impact their, not even just their experience, but you know, does it help them even, does it help them focus in, in a certain way in terms of competing or does it detract from the experience? I mean, those who went in the summer games from Minnesota and those who are now anticipating going, I think there's a contingent of 30 Minnesota athletes competing or 30 people with at least Minnesota ties have you spoken to them at all about kind of what they're anticipating and how that will impact their, their competition? Absolutely. And in fact, the curlers from Minnesota, we have three men and three women curling from Minnesota. They have experienced a similar thing. Both of them competed in world championships last year that were held in bubbles in Canada. So they have been through this situation where there are no fans in the stands. You're tested every day. It's all locked down. And they, they said that it, 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 is, it is different and it is lacking something when you don't have any crowd atmosphere. The athletes last summer in Tokyo also said that just the energy level, I know the gymnasts in particular, we're talking about the fact that 
they get energy and inspiration from the crowd cheering for them. And to be in a silent arena alone with your thoughts, they made it more stressful for them and, and a, a little bit harder just to have the energy and that hype level that you get from the energy that is surrounding you. So it's, it's a very unusual situation for these athletes. And I, I have not heard a single athlete say, well, gosh, this is helpful because we can focus. I don't I've not heard a single athlete say that they would prefer it or that they think it will be good for them. And that makes sense to me. And, you know, there'll be a lot of Minnesota athletes there. Like we talked about just a second ago, like as, as you think about the actual competitions, what are some things that we should be watching for once the games begin here very soon? Well, I think that there certainly could be athletes that are not allowed to compete because they test positive. We do have, as you said, we've got 30 people with Minnesota ties on the U.S. team. But I think it is possible that some people might test positive and then they would not be allowed to compete. So there are some teams that have athletes in reserve. Some of those folks are traveling to China. Some of them will not travel, but will be on call like a normal uh, alternate situation for the Olympics where they don't actually go to the country unless they are needed. But we could very well see even some high profile athletes who are not allowed to compete because of a positive test. There were 33 athletes from all nations in Tokyo that were knocked out of the games by a positive test. And I think it could possibly be even higher in China because of the Omicron variant and how much that is spreading. So certainly there there could be some issues in that regard. Um, certainly in some sports, we will see, I think the television broadcast, you'll notice that there's no crowd noise. China has said it will allow a small number of spectators, people that are handpicked by the government or the Olympic Committee that obviously have been tested many, many times, right. and probably isolated and vaccinated and everything else. So it's likely there will be some, but they have also been told that anyone that is allowed in the venues, and that includes coaches, athletes, whatever, no yelling, no yelling, no chanting, no singing, anything vocal is totally prohibited. So all the athlete um, inspiration will have to be done by clapping. I'm guessing we're going to see some thunder sticks there, probably maybe some cowbells, some other kinds of noisemakers. So it'll be a different kind of sound for sure in Beijing. Massive success for the Minnesota contingent in the summer games, probably beyond what we could have even imagined with Suni Lee, Gable Stevenson, um, you know, just everybody who, you know, the swimming contingent that brought home a lot of medals. I mean, I'm probably forgetting some even at this point, but as we think about, you know, those with the best chance to achieve high levels of success at the winter games, who are we talking about in this case? We have three groups of people who are coming in as defending gold medalists, which is really unusual. You know, typically even just getting to multiple Olympics is, is a huge accomplishment. And to win a gold medal and then win that place again, win the right to come back and win another gold medal is really just a huge accomplishment. Jesse Diggins would be at the top of the list, our cross-country skier from Afton. She's the defending champion in the women's team sprint, and her partner in that race, Keegan Randall, has retired. We don't know yet who Jesse's partner will be in the team sprint, 
She is almost certain to compete in that, though. There are going to be six women's cross-country ski events in Beijing, and Jessie could compete in all of them. It is possible, she noted last week, it's supposed to be exceptionally cold in Beijing. And Jessie loves cold weather, and she does well in cold weather, but her coaches have said that if it is painfully cold, it might be best for her to not ski one of the events in the middle of the schedule. So I think we're going to see her in at least five events, perhaps six. And her personal coach, Jason Cork, thinks she has a shot at multiple medals. She does come in as number three right now in the overall World Cup standings. She's already won a couple of golds on the World Cup tour this, uh, this season. So she comes in in really, really excellent shape. Our men's curling team, uh, John Schuster, the skip, they return everybody but one person from their gold medal winning group in Pyeongchang in 2018. And they've done very well with Chris Plies slotting in for Tyler George. They were fifth in the world championships last year, and they certainly have a chance to medal, possibly even challenge for gold again. And our women's hockey team, which has uh, nine athletes with Minnesota ties, either women who went to college in Minnesota or women who are from Minnesota. They defeated Canada in that very dramatic overtime game, the shootout in 2018 in Pyeongchang. And looks like, once again, surprise, surprise, it'll come down to U.S.-Canada probably for that gold medal. And feels like a toss-up, like almost it almost always does. Like either U.S. or Canada could win that gold medal. Men's hockey team is fascinating too, just with the late switch from sending the NHL athletes to you know sending the the amateurs, a lot of folks from the college ranks. That added a lot of Minnesotans to the roster, kind of at the last minute. Boy, did it ever! I here I was thinking we might have maybe three people with Minnesota ties, and we ended up with nine on the men's team as well. The same amount we had on the women's. We've got guys from the Gophers, from St. Cloud State, from Minnesota State, Mankato, from UMD. Uh, We've got current college players. We've got former college players. It's really a fascinating mix. And I think the men's tournament will be a lot of fun to watch. I enjoyed it in Pyeongchang. I know a lot of people, once the NHL is not there, there are some people that tune it out. They feel like the Olympics should be the best against the best. But I find it really fascinating to see If you don't have NHL players, where do your players come from? And how do you fit them together in a way where you have perhaps like a guy like Aaron Ness, the former gopher playing in Europe now, going to be playing with current gophers, with college guys. How do you create a team out of a really diverse group of people? So I think that's going to be a lot of fun to see how that U.S. team comes together. And this time around, they went with a slightly different strategy. They used more college players this time, more current college players. Last time, it was more older guys who were playing in Europe. So I think that will be fun as well to see how much energy the current college guys bring to the team. And a lot of them already are familiar with one another, too, having played for U.S. hockey in U18 tournaments, in uh, World Juniors, that kind of thing. So I think that might give them a leg up on the team building part of it. It is going to be a fascinating process from beginning beginning to start. It's already started for you months ago as you've gone to, you know, covering some of these trials, uh, Olympic trials, and kind of the lead up to all this. Anything in particular you are writing um, before the games start that we should be watching for? 
We will be running a big Jesse Diggins feature on February 1st that we'll be talking about how Jesse has grown and changed over her four years since Pyeongchang. That was an historic event. The gold medal she won was the first gold medal ever for the United States in cross-country skiing. So Jesse's had a pretty, pretty full life since then. We'll be writing about her. We will be writing about our defending champions and their likelihood of being able to come in and maybe win another gold. We'll have some other features as well on some of our, our additional athletes, including one on the biathlete Leif Nordgren. Leif is a three-time Olympian from Marine on St. Croix, and he has a super interesting story happening right now because his wife is due to give birth to their first child in Vermont on the day that Leif will compete in his first event in Beijing. So, that is going to be a really fun story, I think. We'll tell our readers all about how the two of them will be communicating and who his wife, Caitlin, will have in the delivery room with her and what it's going to be like for Leaf. Gosh, Mike, talk about trying to keep your mind on your business, right? He's going to be trying to ski and win an Olympic medal while his wife is, is giving birth to their first child. So that, that's going to be a fun story. I don't know if my wife would have let me make a choice between the Olympics and being in the delivery room. But that sounds like a really interesting story. All those things sound great. Rachel, thank you so much for joining Daily Delivery. Read Rachel's coverage, StarTribune, StarTribune.com, in the lead up to the Olympics, which begin very soon, and of course, throughout the games. Rachel, safe travels. Enjoy everything you can out there, and we'll, uh, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you so much, Mike. A lot of interesting stuff there from Rachel. Good to catch up with her, and I'm sure we'll hear more from her during the games as time allows, as her schedule allows, because it sure sounds like there will be some real compartmentalization of everything happening over there. Would love at some point for them to be able to get back to a more carefree Olympics, understand why that isn't necessarily possible or happening this year, but it just changes the whole dynamic of the games and again, hoping for next go-around, this is much, much different. Let's get to the Aaron Rodgers question that uh, that I, I posed at the beginning of the show. Broncos hired Nathaniel Hackett, the Packers' offensive coordinator, as their new head coach. That's according to ESPN, a lot of other reports on uh, Thursday morning. Um, Nathaniel Hackett, 42 years old, got some praise from... Um, Aaron Rodgers as, you know, being organized, being able to deliver information in a good way. Um, and Denver is one of the teams that's maybe at the top of the list of potential trade partners if Aaron Rodgers decides he wants to be done in Green Bay and uses that leverage to get out of Green Bay. So that will be interesting. It's adding one more kind of log to that fire. Denver's got a lot of cap space. They have a quarterback need. They've got a pretty good team around Aaron Rodgers potentially if that was going to be the destination but what we know for sure now is that a former Packers assistant is now their head coach and what will that mean for their future let's finish with the cooler two good basketball games tonight Gophers host Ohio State in men's basketball and the uh Wolves play at Golden State underdogs in both games I saw the point spread was six and a half in each case, underdogs for for both those teams. Gophers keep defying expectations, and I'd say to a, different, a certain degree, the Wolves do too. I didn't think they would be quite where they are right now, 24 and 23. So both of those games 
certainly worth a watch. You should be able to stack them both on top of each other because I believe uh, there's a it's a you know staggered start times because of West Coast Central Time types of things. I think let me take a look really quick. Yeah, Gophers at seven and Wolves at nine. And for all of you um, Bally Sports North haters out there, that Wolves game is on TNT, so you will be able to watch that one as well. So. Good, uh, good primetime stuff. Good uh, national exposure for both of those teams. Looks like the Gophers game is on ESPN. So enjoy those games on national TV, and we'll see how those go. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm sure we'll have plenty of follow-up from um, Adolfo Mensa's press conference later this morning and other things on Friday's show, including Mark Craig joining to talk about the AFC and NFC title games this weekend. Oh, yeah, by the way, there is football left to play. There's not just these off-season maneuvers. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Be back at it again on Friday.